0: You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, back with my co-host for this season, our good friend and colleague, Gil Rendell. Hey, Gil.
1: Hey, Lisa. Looking forward to talking to you and to our conversations. Uh, It's been a lot of fun talking to these people.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. So, in this season... We are exploring themes from Gil's short paper, Jacob's Bones, which is available for free on our website, and that link is in our show notes. So, Gil, in your paper, you talk about resilience, and you say that uh, resilience is the capacity to retain one's core identity and purpose in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. Will you say more about that and what resilience looks like uh, for those in the church today?
1: Resilience, I think, is one of the keys uh, to living in a um, just this huge churning of a fast changing culture. Uh, You've got to be able to be resilient in all that. And so, uh, when we're using the word resilience, we're actually using it in the sense of, uh, you know, kind of systems theory. This is not the kind of resilience that uh, uh, you can continue to live no matter how hard you get hit. I mean, there is that sense of resilience, and sometimes. Uh, you know, our communities or people feel that way. That's not really what we're talking about here. This is the resilience of being able to thrive mm. in the midst of everything swirling around you. And so that that issue of retaining one's one's core identity and purpose in, in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. There was a fellow, uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, who would write uh, books about uh, anti-fragile. Oh, right. And one of the things, yeah, one of the things he would talk about is the more structured you are, the more steady you are, the more uh, kind of steady you are. In fact, the more fragile Mm -hmm. you are. Because you can't withstand all the tensions that are going around you. You you can only move in one Uh way. And if you're not allowed to move in that way, it may do you in. Uh, But here we're talking from a systems point of view of resilience, of Being so sure about who you are and what your purpose is, your identity and your purpose, that no matter how the circumstances change, you can continue that, but just in new ways. So it isn't how you do it, it's who you are and why you do it. And then the rest of it is up for grabs. When I'm talking to groups about this, sometimes I'll uh, talk about birds. You know, any species of birds that has its own uh, kind of uh, environmental niche and they know how to do what they need to do. They know how to nest there. They know how to feed there. They know how to propagate there. They have it down pat. And then suddenly their environment changes. The forest gets cut down and they build uh, houses instead or the weather changes in a long pattern and everything okay the bird still has to be a bird mm-hmm. it still has to be exactly what it is and it has some things that it has to do because that's what it's there for it still has to nest it still has to propagate it still has and so the the species that thrive are those that can adapt quickly they are resilient they don't stop doing the necessary they just find really different ways to do it. And I think that that's one of the things about, uh, you know, congregational life right now. Our, our, um, our culture has changed so much. Our surrounding has changed so much that we have to do it in new ways. Well, the dilemma is that we've got a lot of congregations trying all kinds of new things, but they right. don't know why. Okay. What they do, didn't get down was the identity and the purpose. They're not really sure about who they are and why they are. And what is it that is carrying them forward or what is it that they have to carry forward? Now that's the, the -hmm. Jacob's bones issue. Okay. So, you know, that clarity, of course. So, uh, you know, know, I'm, I'm working on this new book uh, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jacob's bones in in a new and a different way. But it does have a lot to do with what's at the center, uh, what cannot change. And so mm-hmm. I started to play with that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thinking uh, not so much trying to answer this for everybody else, but certainly for myself and for the church that I'm part of. And I'm trying to think, what what is at the center? So I'm thinking about what is the treasure yeah. that has to be carried ahead of all the things that we say we believe. What lives at the center? Okay. So what I came down to was um, three things that, and if you will, this is the the North Star that the institution of the church has to follow in the time of the turning. And so can I say this? It's obvious. (laughs) It's the dual commandment, love God and love your neighbor. And then after that, it's what Paul did with that. Uh, And he included everybody. So the three things we have to know is we have to love God. You know, In a world that we cannot control, we have to at least be aware that there is a God that is more than we are, and we can trust that God, and we can align ourselves with that God to be part of a creation no matter how it shifts around us. You've got to love God, and you got to love your neighbor. If you really want a worthy life for yourself, then you're going to have to seek ways to provide it for everybody, or else you won't have it at all. And then that's where Paul comes in, you got to include everybody. If we need a community, if if the only way we can live is within community, then the only community that can sustain sustain us is the one that includes everybody else. No judgments here. Mm -hmm. We don't draw lines. Everybody is part of God's creation. Okay. So, you know, what I just said now was obvious to any Christian, but if that's if that's the stuff that is not being carried forward then we're just a bunch of programs activities yeah you know we're not the church yeah yeah so what i'm saying is that uh, well let's go at it a a little bit of a different way you and i uh, often you know at this point um, are into reflecting what we've already heard from the the conversation that Mm -hmm. people are about to hear and so Let me just say that, uh, you know, if we're talking about resilience here, listen for it Mm -hmm. when we talk with George. Because here is a guy who, um, he is not a quiet man. Uh, You know, he bubbles out all over the place. But the thing is, he's got his theology down. He knows what he's about and what he's trying to accomplish. And from that point out, he just boils over and, and runs all over everything from there. You know, he'll talk about fresh expressions, which are... Uh, you know, uh, it's a language that's now being used to talk about the experimentation of, of taking the church into different environments, but still being the church. And so, you'll hear that resilience in George. You'll hear him still be church, but he'll talk about it in all kinds of really different ways. But he never strays too far from the theology that he can uh, he, he, he can articulate well.
0: That is so helpful, Gil, and I can't wait for you all to hear our conversation with George. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Reverend George Acevedo is the lead pastor at Grace Church, a multi-site United Methodist congregation in Southwest Florida with three campuses. George graduated from Asbury College in 1984, where he received a Bachelor of Arts degree majoring in Bible, and he's also a graduate of Asbury Theological Seminary with a master of divinity degree and he's currently working on his doctor of ministry from united theological seminary focusing on building generative collaborative teams for congregational vitality and sustainability he's been a faithful united methodist serving for many years as a delegate to the general conference he also served on the call to action steering committee and he and gil got to work together on the commission on a way forward George has co-authored and written many books, including A Field Guide for Methodist Fresh Expressions, Neighboring, and The Graceful Life, God's All-Reaching, Soul-Saving, Character-Shaping, Never-Ending Love. Before we go to the interview, let me say a word about Fresh Expressions because this has been a movement that started in the UK and came to the US and that Florida has really embraced and, and George has been a leader in this movement, uh, he and Michael Beck, who he re- refers to and Fresh Expressions is an effort to move into the community where the people live and work and play and to really help people to, to form community and to know the gospel and, and really to meet Jesus, if you will, in literally fresh expressions of what it means to be the church. Um, if you haven't heard about it or seen it, I hope you'll, um, you'll Google fresh expressions. We'll put a link in our, in our show notes um, so that you can hear more about it. So without further ado, let's move to our conversation with George. So thank you, George, for being with us. It is so good to be together.
2: Well, thank you. Honored to be here.
0: So we want to start really by hearing a little bit about you and about what brought you into ministry. And you, you have have shared openly and often that by the grace of God at 17 and that God rescued you from a life of addiction. And so can you tell us about that?
2: Uh, I call it now uh, with... Uh great delight and celebration. Yeah. i call it the family business. Uh, it's uh, the, the, the business of addiction was uh, mm. a part of our family narrative, my family of origin narrative. Uh, as best I know, at least three or four generations of particularly the males in our Puerto Rican family being profoundly dependent on drugs and alcohol. And uh, it's a business that I took up uh, in high school. And nurtured it uh, until after coming to Christ and uh, inviting Jesus into that space in my life, uh, began to find healing and deliverance from that. So uh, it's also been a rich part of my personal narrative that's really helped define uh, my ministry, uh, particularly at the the place that I've been serving now for 26 years, uh, Grace Church in Cape Coral, Florida.
0: So, can you say more about that? About how those recovery and healing ministries sure. have been an important part of of your ministry at, at Grace Church? Yeah,
2: you know, one of the things that you learn in undergraduate school and in seminary uh, is that the word for salvation, often uh, the Greek word there, we, that we sometimes just simply think of as the transactional mm-hmm. thing that happens—you uh, know, Christ's righteousness for our own righteousness. Uh, also has a, a, a richer, fuller meaning of healing, that uh, one of our uniquenesses, I would say, in the Wesleyan stream is that we believe that Jesus came to rescue us not only from the hell we're <laughs> heading to, but the hell that we're living in. Or another way of putting it is that uh, it's not just to get us to heaven, but it's yeah. also to pour heaven into us. And so deep within our theology and the early practices of Methodists uh, was this desire to see the goodness of Uh, and the grace of God uh, penetrate uh, our addictions and our afflictions and our compulsive behaviors. And um, so uh, when I came to Grace Church uh, 26 years ago, uh, I taught our people that uh, let's begin to pray that we Mm -hmm. would be the church for people that nobody else wants. Later, we said, help us Mm -hmm. to be the church for people that nobody else sees and uh, wants or sees, Uh, the forgotten people on the margins And we knew that churches are often guilty of what I call um, spiritual malpractice, uh, meaning they offer Jesus the healer without offering uh, the people, the places, and the processes for Jesus to heal. And so I wanted our church to be a place where uh, the people on the margins of our community could come and experience the healing ministry of Jesus, which is salvation, and that we would need to create people, places, and processes. And, At the core of that has been our recovery ministries, uh, which we've been doing now for uh, 22 and a half years. Uh, And it's uh, a community within our community that uh, we use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with Jesus as our higher power. And uh, we've just seen remarkable life change. Uh, Mm. I call it getting a front row seat at life change. And uh, so that's been a rich part of not only my own personal journey, uh, because uh, probably about 10 years uh, into starting that ministry, we discovered that my youngest son had taken up the family business. We had uh, a hellish 15 years with our youngest boy as he struggled with an addiction to opiates, who I'm glad to report uh, has spent the last four and a half years uh, clean and Mm -hmm. sober. And we have a beautiful relationship. And uh, so he's he's a, a miracle of God yeah yeah it's been a been a beautiful journey so but our church has kind of kind of garnered that uh, vibe, that uh, ethos of being a place for broken people and I think it reflects I think it reflects uh, some of the very best of our Wesleyan tradition.
1: George, can we uh, kind of go a little bit deeper on that uh, and particularly mm-hmm. sure. the role of healing within Christian ministry? I've got a, a friend uh, Scott Morris who says that Jesus Uh, spent about a third of his time talking about healing. And so the church doesn't get a pass on that. We just don't hand it over to the hospital. And uh, we really have to get involved with that. And so, you know, uh, his language and what you're doing suggests that healing is an activity of some form. It is um, a practice of the church. And I heard you say that your church follows the the 12-step process. But talk more about it from a discipleship point of view. Sure. How does sure. the church heal? How does it go about healing?
2: There's a, a lot of conversations uh, in the recovery community about, mm. you know, kind of like what's the magic that happens? And I'm convinced that the magic is the healing community itself. That what the, the church has the unique opportunity to offer a broken world is we have the capacity to, if we will be honest and vulnerable and truthful, and acknowledge our own brokenness. Uh, I think it was John Wimber, uh, founder of the Vineyard Movement, who said, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, healing ministry in the church, I think, begins uh, with leaders who are willing to acknowledge their own limp. At, At Grace Church, we say everybody's got an it. You might not know what your it is, but you can ask the people who are closest to you, and they'll gladly tell you what your it is. And you might not want to talk about it. You might not want to uh, think about it, but it is very much a part of your life. And it is our compulsive behaviors, our addictions, our afflictions. Uh, Saddleback calls it, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, uh, at their Celebrate Recovery, they call it their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And Jesus didn't come to just forgive us of some nebulous sin thing, principle, Paul calls it, that's at work within us. Uh, he, he comes to heal us and deliver us from the uh, childish things that Paul says we can put away in First Corinthians 13. Uh, he comes to heal us from the wounds of our family of origin and the traumas that we experience. To, uh, he comes to heal us from those obsessions in our life, uh, whether it's eating too much or shopping too much or uh, drinking too much, or uh, or having too many relationships that are unhealthy and having no boundaries in our life. Um, Jesus comes to heal us of those things. And uh, it, the scriptures are filled with it. Your friend Scott is absolutely right. Uh, we tend to talk about the ministry of Jesus as being preaching and teaching and healing. And we pretty much got preaching and teaching figured out. But we don't talk much about healing. And as I said earlier, we often in church declare a gospel that says, Jesus Christ can fix your life. And people sit on the end of their chairs. They sit up on the edge of their seat and they say, yes, pastor, yes, leader, please tell me how. <laughs> how can that happen? And so what we've tried to do is create unique spaces, places, and people, uh, people, places, and processes, or what we call them, where where Jesus can heal people. There needs to be a safe place where people can gather. And so that means, you know, creating classrooms and classes and those kinds of things. And it's everything from our finances to our marriages, to raising our kids, to dealing with these addictions, afflictions, and compulsive behaviors.
0: Imagining that as you all have committed to this healing ministry and to making it an integral Mm -hmm. part of who you are at Grace Church, that, um, that that was a journey. I mean, 26 years ago, they were at a different place than they are today. And so so what has that looked like? What obstacles have you faced a long way? How would you describe the church today and the shifts sure. that have occurred over the years?
2: Yeah, I, I have this conviction that uh, spiritual leaders primarily do three things. They build healthy and holy teams who cultivate, secondly, uh, cultures, transformational cultures and environments and who practice and get better at making more and maturing disciples of Jesus. They create processes for disciples or make the making of disciples uh, who are maturing. And it's that second piece that I think that you're asking about is about the kind of culture or the environment. It's it's the softer side of, of parish work of local church work. And I would say that that's been created by cultivating a team of people um, I don't know the exact language, but uh, I remember Chuck Hunter one time saying that Mr. Wesley, when he was preaching uh, in the fields, his teams were walking Mm -hmm. through the crowds looking to see whose eyes were lit. In every church, there are women and men whose eyes are lit. And I would tell you that 26 years ago, uh, the eyes were pretty dim. I was 36, uh, the youngest person, Mm -hmm. one of the youngest people in the church uh, with our two sons, my wife and I. And the lights were almost out, but we did find uh, 30 people, ironically, who had been on the walk to Emmaus, of all things, and uh, they were saying things to me like, we want to have happening in our church what happened out at our Emmaus weekend. And, uh, and those 30 people were the folks in whom I invested most of my time in those early days trying to create these healthy, holy teams who could uh, embody the very life of Jesus which is for the people on the margins. And so uh, it began there. I would say strategically, we began to launch ministries like Stephen Ministry. And then uh, several years in, about uh, uh, three years in, four years in, we launched Celebrate Recovery using the model from Saddleback Church out in California. And I would say uh, from the language of the book Tipping Point, that our tipping point happened about five years after we launched our recovery ministry where I heard the language shift in our congregation from those people to our people. Uh, but it took, it took years and years of cultivating. I, I probably every three or four years would preach a ser- series of messages, and our team would preach a series of messages using the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as kind of the foundational teaching Uh, on our weekend worship services. We happen to be in one right now uh, during Pentecost that we've entitled Higher Powered, and uh, we launched it last weekend on Pentecost Sunday. We're talking about, uh, there's a lot of conversations in recovery community about Jesus as your higher power, but what about the Holy Spirit as your higher power? And so we're walking uh, in a four-week series through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us to healing and deliverance. So Part of our strategy, uh, Lisa was and has been, to preach about this and to use the preaching office as a place uh, to do that. And then, you know, we're just we offer both traditional and Christian recovery seven days a
1: week at all three of our campuses. Well, George, you, uh, at the center of everything you're talking about here is the community. You said that's the community itself is the magic, and then you talk about mm-hmm. a community that's able to uh, find its identity, so that um, those people are our people. Uh, the thing about communities is that uh, they can go stale. They can they can actually mm-hmm. get unhealthy. Um, so how do you maintain health? I think there's two things to that. You know, you know, how do you make sure that the community that you are offering to people is healthy and how do you keep yourself healthy so that, and when I'm talking about that, you know, you know how easy it is for a community to get stale, uh, to get complacent, Mm -hmm. to get comfortable, you know, to simply enjoy what they've always already discovered themselves. How do you, how do you help Mm -hmm. keep that stirred? Well, I, I, am a big believer that,
2: the most important and the hardest thing to lead in a spiritual leader's life is themselves. Organizations are a piece of cake compared to leading ourselves, typically. As difficult as organizations are to lead, it's leading our life well. Paul said to Timothy in First Timothy, I believe it was chapter four. Can't remember the exact verse, chapter. Keep close watch over yourself. And then he added, and your teaching or and your doctrine or and your... And, and so, you know, Paul had this impulse to the young Timothy, likely the pastor at Ephesus, that he needed to keep close watch over himself. In our own tradition, uh, there's a beautiful relationship that my friend Jim Harnish first taught me about, about the relationship between Mm -hmm. John Wesley and uh, John Trembeth, who was one of his preachers. And uh, it was to John Trembeth that he said, you know, you're not a good preacher because you don't read much and you don't study much. And he said that famous line, fix some part of every day for daily devotions with God, that sort of deal. I don't have the exact quote, but and it, it's this impulse in Mr. Wesley to say, lead your life well, keep close watch over your life. And I would say one of the graces God has given me uh, has been that I have welcomed in my life all kinds of avenues to help me stay um, spiritually attuned. I'm a, I mentioned earlier that I, I've been devouring Todd Bolsinger's uh, book, uh, Tempered Resilience. And uh, he talks about having uh, front stage, backstage, and off stage friends. And he, there's a quote in his book, and again, I'm going to butcher it. I don't have it exactly. But he says that uh, for a spiritual leader not to have, and he uses the language, spiritual directors, therapists, counselors and coaches in their life at every moment of their leadership, he calls it is leadership malpractice. And so as I look over the landscape, I've been a pastor almost 40 years now, and I can say with great confidence that I've had coaches and spiritual directors and therapists and mentors all along the journey. Um, I've welcomed that as a part of my life. And so that's part of what Gil, I think, at least for me, has kept it fresh. Uh, I've been in the same covenant group for 30, almost 33 years now, a group of clergy. Uh, We met when we were young pastors wearing polyester suits at the back of annual conference. And uh, we meet twice a year. We text 25, 30 times a day, everything from silly memes to important scripture verses and uh, quotes uh, that we're learning. Uh, My therapist is on speed dial. I meet with my spiritual director uh, uh, every month. I have a a coach I meet with every other week. I'll meet with him tomorrow morning. So those have been a regular part of my personal life. I think they're invaluable. I do think the sickness unto death for most spiritual leaders, and I use the phrase spiritual leaders purposefully, to include both clergy and laity in this conversation is uh, is isolation. Uh, it is the sickness unto death. And um, so as a leader, I've tried to model that for our teams. And so as our church has grown from a few hundred people to a few thousand people, uh, from one campus mm-hmm. to several to three campuses now, and a whole bunch of fresh expressions of church, and as our staff to, to lead those ministries has grown as well, it's become a part of the kind of, covenanted understanding of what it means to be on our teams, and that extends even to our lay teams. This is not just something for the paid Christians, you know. This is for everybody. Uh, One of the things that I'm learning in my doctoral work is that Mr. Wesley created a discipleship system that called out the very best in everyone, and that's why entire sanctification is the bullseye of the Methodist movement and not salvation because entire sanctification says that whether you're a chambermaid or whether you are a member of parliament, there is kingdom potential in you. And part of the Wesleyan discipleship system was to release that kingdom potential in every human being. Um, it's why, uh, and I've done a lot of research and I've asked a lot of Wesleyan scholars and historians, you really can't find a leadership development track in the early Methodist movement. And the I think the answer is, because he believed everybody was a leader. Mm-hmm. They had some level of leadership capacity. And um, Love It Weems has written about that uh, a little bit, uh, but not many have written about uh, that, that really it was, they created a culture, a disciple-making culture, where everyone was released. And so part of the way we've tried to keep our church from that kind of drift, um, one of our great hymns, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love, uh, is, is that it's, it's, we've been pretty relentless. Um, a friend of mine came to join our staff a number of years ago and he said, I've discovered at Grace Church that just when you think you've scored a touchdown, you move the line 10 more yards. And so that's been, I mean, that's been a 26 year practice. Mm. Um, just as we're kind of getting there now, our problem is we don't stop long enough to celebrate a little bit and then move the 10. I have a propensity to want to Keep moving the 10 yard line uh, to 10 yards uh, much too quickly. And so we've gotten a little bit better at that. But, you you know, uh, a church, uh, a denomination, uh, a ministry has to have, you know, those, it's kind of passe, but those big, hairy, audacious goals, those, the, the kind of next steps for us. And so, you know, whether it was in the early days with recovery ministries or transitioning from traditional to contemporary worship or uh, launching small groups or becoming globally focused church, whether it's becoming multi-site. And now in these days, it's fresh expressions of church. We're constantly setting out in front of us. Let's let's find some God-honoring, kingdom-expanding vision that we can move towards. And that's kept us on our toes, I think, Gil, um, all of these years.
1: Well, if I can, let me follow up because, uh, you know, language is sometimes important for people who are trying to sort out what they're doing. And at one point you talk about a discipleship system, and this was when you were talking about Wesley. And so a system is something that we Mm -hmm. often think about as having a particular way of doing. You put practices and you put steps in front of people and they follow it in order and so forth. But then you also talked about a disciple-making culture. Now, a culture Mm -hmm. is different than a system. A culture is much more open-ended and people can find their ways in in different ways along the way. How tight or how open does the church need to be in order to invite people into a relationship with Christ? Well, that's a great question. I I think the church
2: has to be uh, a place of um, radical grace and healthy disciple-making. And I think it was Max Lucado probably two decades ago, maybe three said something like Jesus loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to keep you there. sounds like a good Methodist thing that would be said, you know, it's this sense of, do you expect to be made perfect in this life? There's, there's a movemental part to it. So, uh, you know, we have words to describe our disciple making process. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was a student at, at, at Asbury, uh, Dr. Steve Harper was one of my professors, particularly I took him in, in the area of spiritual formation and Wesley studies. And he said in his book, uh, The Way to Heaven, that for each stage of, this is, again, this is, I'm not exactly quoting it, but for each stage of grace, Mr. Wesley created a formative element for that stage. And, and, and what that meant was uh, we teach our kids in confirmation about God's wooing, provenient grace, God's saving grace, and then God's sanctifying grace Mm -hmm. Uh, as this, this movement of grace that we experience. And Mr. Wesley created formative elements, and I think those are the systems. I call them the buckets for that grace to be at work. So the United Societies was the place where provenient grace worked. It was that invitation to come. And so I ask our Methodist tribe regularly, when I'm invited to speak, uh, I'll ask things like, where is it safe not to follow Jesus in this church? Or or, or maybe a little more prophetic, I would say, I think we Methodists believe in prevenient grace. We just do ministry like we don't believe in mm, provenient mm-hmm. grace. So we don't risk. We're, we're not we're, uh, a woman. I got the most mm. unusual text I've ever gotten in ministry, literally uh, a few weeks ago. And it was uh, a text sent to several of the pastors and staff, and it said, hey, does anybody here know a stripper? <laughs> and I thought, whoa, 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 what's going on? And uh, the next text was, uh, we're launching a dinner church at three, a dinner breakfast at three in the morning for strippers when they get out of work. And we're looking for uh, the person of peace, uh, to use the language of Jesus and fresh expressions, the person of peace who could help us launch a ministry in the, uh, in the strip club industry. And that's saying that God is at work in the strip club. And Mr. Wesley created a place for that, a space for that, and a people for that. For Justifying Grace, only a membership qualification for being in a class meeting was a desire to flee the wrath to come, meaning I'm seeking God. And uh, I believe it was Tom Albin that said in some of his research, if you weren't a follower of Jesus in a class meeting, that it took somewhere around three years you to become a follower of Jesus. And so that became the space for justifying grace. And that once a person came to faith in Christ, they then uh, moved into the bands where some sanctifying grace was at work and where they could cooperate with sanctifying grace. So 300 plus years later at Grace Church, we talk about reach ministries. Those ministries were the churches in the community and world, engaging it and inviting the world to know the love of God. And then we have connect ministries where people connect with Jesus and our fellowship, our community. And then we have uh, we go from reach to connect to form ministries where people uh, learn the way of Jesus, the practices of Jesus, so that they can move to that second phase of sanctifying grace, we call send ministries, where we're sending people out into the world, reach, connect, form, send. So those are four words. So when you say how stringent is that, contextually not at all. Because we were privileged to have three campuses in three very different locations, one in the suburb, one in a kind of semi-rural, semi-suburban area, and one uh, in an in a urban area. And we each use the same discipleship path, reach, connect, form, sin. But how that plays out in each of those contexts is unique.
0: So you said this statement that I want to follow up on, where is it safe not to follow Jesus? Will you just say another word about that?
2: Sure, sure. I, I, I think, again, I, we, we we believe in provenient grace. We believe that God is drawing people in every space and every place to God's self. We just believe that. We've experienced it. Uh, I always tell our folks that you know provenient grace best when you turn around and look back. Hmm. You seldom know it when you're in it. Right. You, you just look back and you go, oh, yeah, well, that, that was God. That was God. That was God, you know. My, my first Provenient Grace moment was when a girl named Chris in the seventh grade broke my heart. I know it's hard to believe that a girl broke up with me, but she broke up with me in the seventh grade. And, and I still remember crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? you know, Why have you abandoned me? You know? And so we believe that God is at work. Our hearts are restless until they rest. in the uh, N.T. Wright talks about there is an echo of a voice inside of every human being that something is amiss. And so we believe that God is at work in every person, in every human heart, but do we have the courage to join God in those spaces and in those places and amongst those people who, are, who, who may be very far from God? And where is it safe in your church for those kinds of people to be not yet professing Christ, not yet on the disciples' path, but interested uh, and maybe in some cases disinterested, and so uh, we throw a lot of spaghetti against. Are pushing back, are questioning, our question, or absolutely, or absolutely. Go in
0: the blank, right?
2: So we throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall, and we see where it sticks. And then if it sticks, we we add more fuel to it and try to build around that. Um, we've tried more fresh expressions that haven't worked. I, you know, in, in our tribe, some folks have heard about some of the kind of innovative things we've done down in in Southwest Florida. But what, 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 what I need to remind everybody is I would say that for every good thing that you have maybe read about or heard me speak about, I can take you to 10 other things that didn't work. And yeah. one of the things that I believe the church might be, might be its sickness unto death is its unwillingness to take risk. The only thing that will, that will shift the down death spiral in a local church is radical risk. It's going to take radical risk. And I think God gave us uh, a gift in COVID, not that COVID was a gift, but the the result of it was, I think it's made us all begin to think, oh my gosh, how do we reach people for Jesus when we can't gather on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock in our rows? I think it became a contextual opportunity for us to see, is the gospel nimble enough to work in every place, in every season, and with every
1: challenge, and uh, at Grace Church, we found that indeed it did. Well, George, what I'm loving about this conversation is that there are two sides that I keep hearing as you talk, and the one is the side in which you, as pastor, you as um, you know, kind of the congregational leader you've clearly done your homework, you know, as, as a Methodist listening to a Methodist, uh, you've got it down, you know it, and, uh, and you can express it. Okay. But then after you get it down and you know what you're working on, then you begin to say, where do I see it? Where can I find it? How can I help it happen? And that's where you get really creative. And so that's where your spaghetti theory comes in, yeah. you know, it, and, and, the, the mm-hmm. thing is that uh, when you talk about uh, congregations that are trying to find their way in a really fast-changing culture, too many are looking around saying, oh, there's something that's, that works. Let's try it here. But they don't even mm-hmm. know what the base is that they're trying to accomplish. They're just trying to replicate yeah. an activity. And what yeah. I'm hearing yeah. you do is say there is something very deep at the heart of what we're doing and we will find whatever way we can to make it happen. Is that a fair way? Yeah, I, I
2: think so. I, I've tried to tell uh, church leaders that imitation is the highest form of flattery, but it's an awful way to do yeah. church. Um, and so what we tend to do is, you know, this is that, that moment where I say, I love Adam Hamilton. We go to COR, we see what Adam's doing, where all of us are, you know, it takes our breath away, we try to replicate it back home and it doesn't work. And we say, well, gosh, either I'm a loser or it, it doesn't really work. Or, Well, no, it, it, there's no contextual sensitivity. Um, uh, you don't live in Leewood, Kansas. You're not Adam. Uh, you, you are who you are. You're Pastor Heather, you're Pastor Sam. You, you live in an urban setting. Uh, you have certain assets and liabilities. So there's a contextual reality to all of this. I, I believe that one of the Muscles that uh, spiritual leaders have to develop is a a kind of contextual intelligence, where they because context is constantly shifting and changing. I think it was March nineteenth, twenty twenty, where at least when we shut down, you know, one of my favorite pastimes is uh, watching sports shows, even though I'm way overweight. Uh, I love watching other people sweat and exercise, and uh, uh, I was watching the, the the show on the Chicago Bulls. And they said when Michael Jordan shifted from playing basketball to baseball, that he wasn't really good at the very beginning. He only got pretty good at the end. And his personal trainer said that his body was trained to play basketball. It was not trained to play baseball. So you would think the greatest basketball player at all times would pick up a baseball bat and hit 350 Mm -hmm. right off the bat. But he didn't have the muscle memory for baseball. He had the muscle memory for basketball. And so on – March 19th, 2020, at least at our place, we had a lot of muscle memory around doing in-person worship gathering, and gathering people. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had to go overnight in 24 hours to a, a completely different set of muscle memories. And we didn't do real well at the beginning. And it took a while to get up to speed to that. And if, if you're not contextually aware of that, I mean, it's, it's why, sadly, a lot of churches were frozen They just, they couldn't pivot. And what I'm grateful for is at least the place where I served, we were nimble enough that we pivoted real quickly. And within a week, we were doing 20 or 30 online opportunities. And within a month, 60 online opportunities every week for people to engage in in their discipleship, regardless of where they were on the spiritual journey. So I I do think that creating this nimbleness in our systems is, is a part of our spiritual responsibility.
1: Well, in your, um, uh, your recent book, The Field Guide to Methodist fresh, fresh Expressions, you're talking about those fresh expressions. And it's pointed out that I think it's a subtitle of a chapter, A Vile Movement Begins in the fields. Now this is quoting uh, Wesley. How far is um, a vile movement? How far does a vile movement take you? Are there places that you would not go in terms of the practice of a church? Or is it simply all up for grabs as long as it does what God intends? Uh, how do you think about the, the center and how far away the edge can be?
2: Yeah. You, you know, Michael and I, uh, Michael Beck uh, and I are dear friends, and, and we, uh, he, he wrote 90% of the book. Look, look, at, look at the text. Uh, I, I told a couple of stories, and uh, he wrote the heart of the book. And uh, Michael and I are uh, very wired very differently I am a. Uh, I lead from the center out, where Michael leads from the edge in. Uh, or put another way, uh, Paul's apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. It's called the Apest: apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Uh, Michael is an ape. He's an apostle, prophet, evangelist, and I'm a shepherd, teacher. Uh, Mr. Wesley said, "I love the commodious room." Uh, he's talking about the the sanctuary. Uh, he loved the, the the pulpit and the and the the furniture of the of the of the chapel, and and that's the space that I love, and I'm comfortable in that space. But I have eight propensities, so for me, when I th- when you ask the question, how far are the edges? There's uh, Craig Rochelle, who pastors that very innovative uh, Life Church TV uh, yes. church. That's I guess the largest church in America, uh, maybe in the world. Craig Rochelle says we'll do anything to reach people for Jesus, short of sin. Now, uh, I think that's that's a pretty good definition, Gil, of how far... I mean, is a stripper church okay? Yeah. As long as I don't go into the strip club, it's probably okay. You know, uh, And it's you know, this is going to be run by a group of women who feel a passion for that. So I think you can stretch it pretty far. Uh, let me put it this way, though. I think for the average church and the average listener, it would be just to know that there's a park in your neighborhood. We ain't got to worry about going to the strip club. Just know that there's a park in your neighborhood where a hundred kids, multi-ethnic kids come and play in that park. And those kids have the provenient grace of God at work in their life. So might we launch a once Saturday morning a month, messy church in that park under a gazebo so that maybe in that space, we could create a space for discipleship to happen for those kids and then maybe even their parents as well. Could we throw that spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks? And if it sticks, we throw more spaghetti on the wall and we build on that. And uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, In our contextual work, we discovered that one of the largest unreached people groups in most communities, but in ours, was the families of adult special needs Uh children. In the state of Florida, uh, they will educate you to about 21 or 22. And then after that, you're on your own. There are a handful of companies that will hire special needs adults, a couple of the grocery stores, big chain grocery stores. But for the most part, uh, the average special needs family with an adult child is way below the poverty line. It's typically a single mom because dad left a long time ago because it was too hot in the kitchen. And so... Uh, this precious mother spends her entire life with that child uh, because they're an adult and they can't get too far away from them. They need their care. So we decided we would launch a ministry called Exceptional Entrepreneurs. <laughs> it, we first started by doing worm farming, if you can imagine that. It was just, it was a, doing worm farming. It was a, an industry and we would sell the worms for farmers and
0: for right, composting and
2: such. composting those kinds of things. They made worm tea. It's supposed to be some kind of a, 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 you know, it keeps bugs away. Uh, it, it grew into now it's we, we uh, rent three large bays at a strip mall. They have a wood shop in it and they make wood products. Everything from chairs for your patio deck to Christmas gifts to you you name it. A wall art, uh, outdoor art for your yard. Uh, our director, Margaret, says it has twenty special needs adults in it. And Margaret, our director says, we don't make products. We create a community. Hmm. So, so let me tell you about my friend, Josh. When Josh's single mom brought him to our Exceptional Entrepreneurs Ministry, he did not speak. He was mute. Today, I saw a video of him last month of him singing at karaoke uh, at, uh, at our yeah, Exceptional right. Entrepreneurs Uh, He leads the prayers. It's a little faith community Mm. that we've created. Their parents are coming to Christ. About five years ago, I baptized four of them who asked to be baptized. And I told my wife who's spent her entire life with the special needs community. She's a high school special needs instructor. I told my wife on the way home from church through tears, I said, I could die today because ministry will never get better than this single moment right here. And so I would just say, if, if a congregation and leaders are wise enough to do the contextual work, they will discover that there are pockets of people in communities in their, in their church, around their church that can be reached. Now, they're not going to likely come on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. And if, if, if that's the only box you check for a victory, uh, ministry in the 21st century is going to be really painful for you. It's going to be very painful for you. We're still at 50 to 60% of our in-person attendance pre-COVID. We lost 325 families during COVID and during the election. Mm -hmm. And I would say in my community, it was primarily Uh the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, And simply because we wouldn't tell people who to vote for. And we we told people to wear masks in church. So uh, we lost a lot of folks. And you know what that did for us, Mm -hmm. though? Uh, To your point, Gil, it became uh, our Popeye moment, our holy discontent. I stands all I can stands. I can stands Mm -hmm. no more. Uh, We said we have to relook at all of our disciple-making systems because we didn't do a good job. We we discipled people to a place where who you voted for for president became more important than who's sitting on the throne in heaven. And uh, we discipled people for whom when our pastor simply played a prayer that God would turn, would turn proud boys into men of God, racists into reconcilers, which sounds like a kingdom prayer to me, they left mm. our church. And so we said, we can't be angry at them. We were angry at ourselves because we did not disciple mm. them better. We did, we did not help create an environment where the way of Jesus, the, the practices that they're practicing, uh, deeply embedded the way of Jesus into their life, where they could see past the kingdoms of this world to the kingdoms of our God. And so uh, you you can get mad at folks for leaving your church, or you can say, maybe we need to do a gut mm. check for our own disciple-making systems.
0: That's powerful, George. and And I think so helpful for so many who are listening, who are struggling with what it means to be in a you know, in this quote unquote post, although it's not quite post COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. world and to be the church, you know, they're not back where they were before. They don't know what to do with that. And, um, and so hard to lead in this polarized time and, and to hear from you, George, what that, what you're doing with that, um, it is, is really, I think, important and, and a powerful witness. So I appreciate that. And I I have one more question for you, but before we get there, I want to say that um, there are so many directions. I still want to go, right? (laughs) I I want to, I want to follow on that um, discipleship culture right alongside system. I want to think about this center and edge and what your role as a center leader is. And as you really empower and embolden and, give cover to these innovators who have ideas and, and I want to pursue this notion of collaborative leadership. Like, so all, what I'm saying is like, when we call you back, will you say yes? <laughs> because there are more conversations Absolutely. we want to Absolutely. have with you. Yeah. And, um, and we <laughs> always hope that these podcasts are the beginning of a conversation and certainly not the, the end of a conversation. Um, but let me, let me ask this one last question that we're asking all of our guests during this season and that is when you imagine the church twenty, thirty years from now for these next generations, what do you hope is true?
2: you know you, you, you sent that question to me earlier, so I should have had this question like ready to go but i've but I've really mm. agonized over it uh, when when Blair sent it to me because yes, there's a piece of me for whom I could go down, if you will, the doctrinal theological pathway and say, well, I hope that we can embrace X, Y, and Z about the Christian faith. And there's some truth to that. There's very much truth to that. I could go down the practices path and say, you know, I hope we have a turbocharged tradition where we embrace the ancient paths of disciple making, you know, from scripture reflection to communion to all of those kinds of things. I think I could go down the missional path and, and have some words around. I hope we'll be once again, I was privileged to sit at a table for two days with uh, N.T. Wright. There were just four of us and I was at the table wow. with him and it wow. was like, I, I just <laughs> shut up and took notes. And I asked him one question. I said, what is it that was the distinguishing marker of the first church? And this wise, saintly man said, uh, brilliant scholar said, he said it was their love for each other and their Mm -hmm. love for people on the margins. And so, you know, I could go down that path and say, I hope that in our practice of ministry, we would would create spaces where people deeply loved one another and where they loved people on the margins. And so I guess I'd say all of that. (laughs) I guess I'd say, you know, I, I think there's some core theological convictions that I hope we'll hold on to about the nature of God and about grace, about the authority of scripture and those kinds of things. I hope we would uh, travel down the path of the ancient ways, and the, uh, the but <laughs> turbocharge for our contemporary context. And then I hope we would also practice some missional things that, that distinguish us from the Rotary Club. I, I know that in my work for my doctoral dissertation at United Theological Seminary, I did a lot of reading from adaptive leadership and Marty Linsky and Ron Heifetz. uh, One of the things they talk about is that adaptive leadership is, is rooted in biological uh, evolution, that there are things that as a species evolves, it there's DNA it leaves behind there's DNA, it transforms. And thirdly, there's DNA. It picks up new DNA. And I think that, the local church, which I believe, uh, I still hold on to it, that the local church is the hope of the world. I mean, it is, the, it is the place. And I think the local church can be the tattoo shop and the church that meets under the mango tree as well as the church that meets in the grand cathedrals. But that the church, in all of its beautiful expressions of the way it looks, needs to figure out ways in which what DNA do we need to leave behind? What no longer serves us? Uh, what DNA needs to be transformed, what what needs to be remade, and what DNA, new DNA do we need to pick up uh, so that we might be uh, those women and men who are ready to join Jesus serving him in this present age, in the age in which we live. So that's
0: my answer. Uh, and those are, are great questions to end on, um, to invite folks into those conversations. So Thank you, George. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: George, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you again, friend. I love the conversation.
0: Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White. And from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.